I pray for the proud that you would humble them, confront them, confront us in our pride. I pray for the lonely, that you would remind them that there is a friend who is closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. That you've not forgotten those who feel outcast. For it was to the outcast that your son came. I pray, Father, today for the joyful, that their joy would be contagious. For the laborers, that they would be numerous. And that in everything we say and do today, it would give praise and glory and honor to you by worship of Jesus Christ, our King. In His name, the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to remind you, if you weren't aware or let you know of the plans, if you were aware, that one of our dear longtime members, Mr. Larry Woolley, went to be with Jesus this week. And his services are tomorrow across the street at the funeral home at Gallagher, The family visitation is from 10 to 11. The general public visitation is from 11 to 2. And the funeral will be at 2 with the burial there at Forest Lawn. So the family thanks you for your love for Mr. Larry. They thank you for your ministry to them and uh, hope that you can be able to spend a few minutes with them tomorrow, whether by visitation or in attendance of the funeral to encourage and build them up in their faith. Um, This week, I was reminded once again of what a privilege it is to be at Kingsville Baptist Church. We are so surrounded and saturated in prayer, in love, and in encouragement. And our mission team has seen that and experienced that as I... And I came back and began resting this week and recovering from all the travels. I just was able to rejoice in how much you have loved on each other as a church. How mutually encouraging and edifying that you are. And I just want to tell you that I'm thankful to be with you. And I'm thankful to be a part of a ministry of love and gospel that goes from our neighborhoods and encouraging each other, even our next-door neighbors, all the way to the nations and loving on folks there. We've been walking together through Romans 8. It's been a great joy. Maybe one of the funnest things and most encouraging for my heart of all the things I've ever preached through. And we're moving toward the end now. And as you heard Andrew read some of those closing statements that are so powerful. So we're going to focus in just on a couple of the verses he started with today as we kick into Romans eight twenty nine through 31. So, uh, Josiah, are you able to get me on this one screen up here today? I'm, I'm lacking that. Y'all pardon me if I turn around and look back. And uh, uh, for some reason, one of our screens is not showing in the back that I usually follow myself and know where I'm at. So we're talking about the idea of eternal satisfaction. 
And we're going to focus on these two verses, and I want to read back through them and point to one or two things, and then after I've done that, break it into four parts, maybe give you an illustration or two that go with it, and then send you home contemplating this great joy that God promises to satisfy all who come to Him. Eternally, permanently, completely satisfy all who come to Him. So let's jump into Romans 8. Look with me in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? Now, let's stop there. What things is he talking about? Well, he's talking generally about all of Romans and the story of lostness and salvation and the free gift of grace given to us through Jesus' sacrifice. Generally, that's what he's talking about. Then he's narrowing a little bit to the specific things that he said in Romans 8 itself, starting with the no condemnation. And working all the way from that topic into all the reasons there is no condemnation. And then when he gets into the doctrine of election in verses 28 and 29 and 30, he's speaking even more specifically about this unfolding plan of God. Hey, you got it fixed. Thank you, guys. That's perfect. All right. I have a screen now. Great. All right. Know where I'm at. And so he is unfolding a story for us that he wants us to be settled in. He wants to present these truths. He wants them to enter into our hearts. And he wants us to settle and rest in them. To reside in these truths so that they bring about fundamental change in how we approach life. Now, there's several reasons for that. The main reason is this. If you follow Jesus, you will endure persecution. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. So the reason that Paul has given you these things is that the way that Christianity has sometimes been pictured to us, uh, such as, uh, let's see, let's see my clicker is working today. Josiah, is my clicker working today? I don't think so. There we go. Thank you, Josiah. I don't know if that was me or you, but I'm going to follow you. All right. I told you when we first kicked off this section of Romans that this is kind of the view that I maybe accidentally inherited from the church I grew up in. And that was, if you follow Jesus, things will go easily for you. Things will go well They'll go smoothly for you. And there was this idea during the time of my growing up that well, people who follow Jesus, that life's good. Life's easy. And so that picture, whether that was intentionally portrayed to me because that was the belief, or whether they were just afraid to talk about suffering or talk about hardships or talk about ridicule or talk about persecution, I'm not sure. But what I do know is that's what I inherited. Maybe it was a filter that was within me, and I'm the guilty one. Maybe it was an intention that was in them, and they're the guilty ones. I don't know, but I know that that was the view. But as I grew in faith and really 
chose genuinely, deeply to follow Jesus, I found out that life was a lot less like that. And go ahead, Josiah, it was much more like a traffic jam or just it was not smooth sailing at all. In fact, go one more, Josiah. It, it was often like a bridge is out and, and I'm, I'm just stuck somewhere. And I began to find out that Christian life was really hard. And as I got to know Christians who were deeply devoted to Christ, I found out that their lives were, their paths were difficult and, and they had challenges and that there was challenge to their family and challenge at their work and challenge in their schooling and challenge in their friend group and challenge in their health and challenge in their own heart like depression or anxiety or, or a sense of, of, of awkwardness around people. And, and so I began to find out that Christian life was really difficult. And then the more I got to know Christians who were really deeply committed to the cause of Christ and local and global evangelism, the more I found out that their life not only didn't get better as they followed Jesus and got intensely involved in missions and ministry and pouring themselves into the lives of people, I found out their lives got harder. And I didn't understand how to process that. And part of it was my own biblical ignorance and my lack of studying the scriptures. Part of it was that environment that I grew up in where you don't talk about those kind of things. And the result was that I came to several different crises along the way trying to figure out how does this work. And so I found out that not only was Christian life uh, not easy, it was actually hard. One more slide, Josiah. Um, that's more like the Christian life. This is a church member's car. Just three weeks ago. Gwinnell. Deep, loving servant of Jesus. Serving me and my family in ways I can't even explain to you. Serving your church in the background in ways you don't know. Serving others. And she's on her way Going from one place to another, and this happens head on. They have to cut her out of the car and pull her out the back. The Christian life is is not a smooth path. It's not a smooth road where everything just kind of goes hunky-dory. And so what the Apostle Paul is working us through is that stuff. Look in verse 17 of Romans 8. He says, and if... Children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings are real. The pain, the anxieties, the hardships... The targeting by the enemy, the targeting by the world, the targeting by our own flesh against us, warring against our soul. Galatians chapter 5 says that there is a war going on inside of every single believer where the flesh, your flesh, the body you grew up in, is waging war against the work of the Spirit within you. But that's going on right now. And that that battle rages within every one of us. And so that the Christian life is not this smooth 
path. But it's a difficult... Jesus said it. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For narrow is the gate and hard is the way that leads to life. And few are those who find it. And then he warns of the broad way that is easy and smooth and leads to destruction. So Jesus told us these things. A little over a year ago, I was on a mountain bike ride. And uh, it's up in Toccoa, Georgia. It's called Stonewall Creek Falls. It's a really beautiful place. And I set out on the mountain bike ride and, uh, and I lost the trail that I normally take. They'd made some changes, and so I, I was uh, riding, and, and I was riding, and I was riding, and then I was riding, and I noticed that I was getting exceedingly tired. The kind of tired where you start thinking, I don't know if I can go any further. But I knew I was less than halfway through the ride. And so I, I had to stop and and, you know, you start calculating when you're 55 years old. You start thinking, am I just old? Is it just that I'm out of shape and the years have caught up with me and I probably need to put this mountain bike away? It's, do I have the flu? Am I sick? So I'm just sitting there. I'm just, and I'm beat. I'm just sitting there and I'm just, I'm done. And I'm sitting by my bicycle and I'm sitting on the trail. And, uh, and, and I thought, you know, I probably ought to check my bike real quick because some things started running through my mind. And, and so I, I remembered that just before I left, um, I had done some service on my bicycle. And uh, my bicycle has um, hydraulic disc brakes on it, really efficient, really nice. And so I'd adjusted them to make sure they were good to go. But I forgot after I did the service to check and make sure everything was good. And so I picked up the back end of my bicycle and I spun, you know, gave back tire a little spin and it came to a quick halt. I realized I've been riding with the brakes on the whole time. That'll make you feel old. Okay. That'll make you really feel old. And so I, uh, I was kind of bummed out about that, but I was happy that it wasn't just that I was old. It was that I was old and dumb. And so uh, <laughs> I did some adjustment and got my brakes right where the tire was rolling, but I still had half of the ride left to go. And so I got on and literally just had to grind it out. And I mean, every turn. And then I got lost. And I got lost because I missed a turn because so many leaves had fallen that the trail was hidden. And so I got lost and I ended up looping all the way back around the way that I'd started. Not completely, but most of the way. So it added another mile and a half or two miles to the ride. And um, it was not any fun. And so as I'm riding through, I'm getting more and more weary, more and more tired, starting to worry about am I going to get home and am I going to be okay. And So finally I... I get back on the right trail, come back down to that same place, and instead of taking a right, I take a left where I'm supposed to go, and take a left, and I, I work my way through, and finally get to this place. It's one of my favorite places, and, and it ends right here. Go ahead, Josiah. This is where it ends. 
This is Stonewall Creek Falls. This is why you make this ride. You make the ride to get to this place because it's so beautiful. And once I got there, I I didn't think anymore about how hard the ride was. I didn't think anymore about how tired my legs were. I didn't think anymore about what it all been like. I just soaked in the beauty of Stonewall Creek Falls. I just sat there and it's just this huge roar of a cascading stream, which cascades for about three quarters of a mile or a half mile before it even drops to these falls. And so it's kind of a little roar all the way down through there. It's really beautiful. And all of a sudden, all of those things, I forgot how hard all the rest of it would be. And I just sat down and I just rested and I soaked it in. I really think this is what heaven's going to be like. I really think that you and I, we're riding on a path right now and, and, and it's really difficult. Some of it is because the path itself is hard and the journeys are. Some of it's because we're dumb like Bart and we're riding with our brakes on. Some of our problems are self-inflicted and some are others inflicted and some are environmentally inflicted and some are the fall inflicted. But we're traveling through this. I really believe that what God does in the gospel is he keeps saying there's this place you're going to get to one day where all of what that journey was like, even those moments you really thought you were going to give up and quit, that this wasn't for you. I believe that God is working us to get us to this place where when we arrive, we settle and we are so settled when we get there that we forget how hard the trip was. While I was sitting there soaking all that up, all of that stuff was just evaporating. The tiredness in my legs was going away and it was just a joy and a glory. I believe that what Paul is after in Romans 8, is to inform you while you're in the middle of the ride, while you're at the point that you feel like you're about to give up, that there's something at the end of this journey so much better than the ride itself, so much superior to all the sufferings that you go through, that He wants to compel you to keep going to keep motoring, to keep moving toward that goal and not grow weary in well-doing. And so I think that that's Paul's goal here, that the goal is encouragement and endurance in the midst of suffering. That's what Romans 8 is about. It's to get you to that place where you're so encouraged about where you're going to get to and who is helping you get there, Jesus himself, that you stay the course, you stay the journey. So I want to introduce you to four ideas, and hopefully from those ideas, we can be encouraged to stay the course. The first is we should consider the source of all that is in promise to us in Romans 8. Verse 31 says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, What's, what's the big picture? What's the big final answer? What's all this about? It's about this. God is for you. <laughs> That's so good. God is for you. The source of the for you-ness 
of Romans 8. The source of the no condemnation. The source of the adoption. The source of the freedom. The source of the promises for the one day when all of creation will be new and made whole. The source of the help that you're getting by the Holy Spirit. The source of the promises that God has made about your salvation. All of that comes from God Himself. That there is something about Him and His companionship and His salvation and His inhabiting us that makes us able to endure all these things. God is for us. I've always been little, but when I was little, I was littler, okay? And uh, the littleness that I had caused on occasion for me to get picked on. And and because I was little, I just wasn't much of a fighter, okay? I... I, uh, I think I learned the uh, skill of public speaking trying to talk my way out of some situations. I just think that that's maybe where it started. There was this one guy that really didn't like me. And from about second grade on, he picked on me all through elementary school. And it was so bad that I dreaded getting on the bus because he rode the bus with me. I dreaded going to school because I would see him there. Even if I ducked him on the bus, I dreaded going to lunch because I would see him there. I dreaded recess. I dreaded every aspect of my life that was not in my yard. He just didn't come in my yard, so my yard was my safe place. And so I lived in dread of this guy all the time. It was serious, and he would always tell me, uh, he would lean over at lunch and he would whisper in my ear that, that he was going to kick my tail. He would just tell me. And, you know, for the rest of lunch, I'm sitting there going, I'm dead. Yeah, I'm dead. And he was the toughest guy on the block. No, nobody could beat him up. Well, along about uh, sixth grade, a new guy moved in directly behind me. And uh, this guy was big. He's a big guy. And he was strong. And he became one of my best friends. And one day I confided in him, to him, about what this other guy, he said, you don't have to worry about him anymore. He will not bother you the rest of your time at school. You don't have to worry. I will take care of him. And somehow he made known to the other guy what his intentions were. And all of a sudden, my life was at peace. If this one friend was with me, I didn't fear anybody else. There was something about him being there and how big and strong he was. And there was only one guy in the whole junior high that he couldn't whoop. And unfortunately, he picked on that guy one day. I warned him, but that didn't go down well. But he was able to whoop the guy that didn't like me. And so it kept me fearless while I was at school, fearless when I was on the bus, fearless when I was in the neighborhood because he lived right behind me, rode the bus with me, in the neighborhood with me, at school with me. And so I was always, because of his companionship, fearless. Basically, I had no worry that anybody was going to hurt me because he was going to watch after me. Now, in a, in a much bigger way, that's what Paul is trying to tell you right now about your life. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't, but you do. And I want you to know that this verse, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this verse is real. If God is for us, who is against us? Basically what Paul's saying is, bring them up. Line them up. Who is it? The devil beat at the cross. Who is it? 
Who could you line up who could be bigger, tougher, more powerful, more loving, more concerned for your well-being than God? There is no one, and his whole point here is to see that the source of all these promises in Romans 8 isn't some theology, it isn't some preacher, it isn't some church, it isn't some part of church history. This is God. Personally. For you. For you. So, let's go to the next We should contemplate the sacrifice that secured and supplied all that has been promised to us in Romans 8. Now think this through because um, we need to put this in real time for us. We physically, visibly see things. Let's see, let me back up. Uh, back, Back me up all the way to the picture of the car. There we go. This is what real time looks like for us. This is right here in our congregation. Some of you have been through worse. Some of, some of you had harsher things, some less harsh. But this is what it looks like. And when we see this and we experience it, things in our heart begin to kind of get muddled and we start saying, where's the evidence that God is for us? If this is what we're experiencing. If we're experiencing sickness and accidents and trauma. If we're experiencing hardships in our family and and, and disappointments in our relationships. If all these things are going on. If this is the kind of reality that we're faced with day to day in the lives that we live. What is the evidence that God is for us. And Paul really wanted you to ask that question. Because you're here today and you've got trauma. You've got hurt. It may go all the way back into your childhood. All of these things. And you start sizing them up and, and the photographs in your mind look like this. And so you, you, you say, well, I don't know, Bart. It just doesn't seem God's very much for me. Because my life looks like this. This is, my life's like a crash. Paul wanted you to think that way. Because that's real. That's genuine. That's the struggle. It's, it's dealing with cancer. And it's dealing with anxiety. And it's dealing with abuse. Oppression. It's dealing with those things. And it's experiencing them in such a way that you finally go, I don't feel like God's for me. And so Paul says, yeah, I'm glad you're honest about it. Go ahead and get it out. And then he says, verse 32. Mark this one. If you're a verse marker, this is it. (laughs) This is the place. He who did not spare his own son. The one absolute, convincing, total, guaranteed, experienceable, knowable, understandable way that God is for you is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
You want to know if God's for you? Towering above every accident, towering above every illness, towering above every act of abuse, towering above everything that you have ever gone through in your life is Jesus Christ on the cross. The resolution to every one of those issues. The forgiveness for your own sin and the comfort for those uh, pains in your heart when people have sinned against you. Towering above everything that you've ever felt, ever experienced on this earth that is temporal and fleeting and cannot follow you into eternity if you're a believer is Jesus Christ. He who did not spare his own son. What Paul is doing is he's penetrating with a sword deep into your heart that the one evidence, the one undeniable act in history is the cross. And in the cross, God is for you. That's it. We don't need anything else. That's why Paul said, I will boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said our hope is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is in the cross of Jesus Christ. God's love is poured out to us, but God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. And so the thing that you and I need is to contemplate the sacrifice that secured and supplied all, if you'll return to this slide, number two for me, Josiah, thank you, all that has been promised to us in Romans 8. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up, For us all. This is glorious. This is cheerable, applaudable, amenable, clappable, hollerable. Whatever way that you want to put it, this is the thing. The thing that should strike the most joy in our heart and give us the most assurance in our suffering is that there is one who has suffered on our behalf. There's one who understands our weakness. There's one who has contemplated all that we are and all that we've done and yet has loved us and died for us and been raised for us. And so he says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. This was the willing choice of God the Father, the willing choice of God the Son, the willing participation of God the Spirit to bring together this act of love that cures all evils. So we should step back and spend some time contemplating. Very often we get caught up in looking, I don't know if you've ever noticed the tendency of human beings, but have you noticed in the magazines that they sell in the grocery store aisles that none of them are, are selling good news? Ever notice that? They're not. It's like two-headed Elvis clone Mary's gorilla. I, You just never know what's going to be there. But you go, oh, wow, I didn't know that they had a two-headed Elvis clone. Goodness, let me read page two. Evil and darkness and all of those things are very easy because our flesh is pulled toward those things. 
And what happens is, is we go through something, back to our car again, Josiah, we go through something like this and, and we, we have this, this accident and we get caught up in the ugliness of this picture. This is an ugly picture. The front wheel is laying behind the car. Y'all seeing that? This is painful. And it's very easy for us to latch on to these kind of events and the remembrance of crushing metal and breaking glass and screeching tires. And whatever it was that happened to us when we were five or nine or thirteen, there was this event. And we keep going back and we keep dwelling on it. And it pulls us into it, just like those magazines pull our eyes uh, to, to them while we're in the grocery store and we're almost, it's like this magnet that pulls us in. These events pull us back in and we begin to contemplate them as our present and future reality when we need to break open the Gospel of John, jump into chapter 19, read the crucifixion and say, this is my reality. This is my hope. Jesus on the cross, God's own Son, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. This is where I go to contemplate my hope, my good, my love. This is where I have to stay. Your flesh will always be pulled back to this picture rather than to go to to John 19 and just soak in the crucifixion and the willingness of Jesus And the words at the end of John 19 when he says, it is finished. The word contemplate that I put, if you go back, Josiah, one more time to number two. The word contemplate is very important here. Psalm chapter one or the first psalm says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the the, the way of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. What's he doing? He's looking into the love of God. And what's most glorious for us is the law of God for us is Christ who fulfilled the law. And so we look into Christ and how He fulfilled all of the law and the glories. My brothers and sisters, we have to train ourselves to do mental warfare if we're going to survive. If we're not going to be overcome by the things that the world, the flesh, and the devil do to us, if we're not going to be overcome halfway through the bike ride and so tired and worn out and sit down and give up and not get to the glory and see all that was we were headed for in the whole time, that's what Satan wants to do. All he wants you to do is shut up and sit down. It's always after. He just wants you to give up. So let's go to number three and and bring us to a close in a moment. We must, by faith, embrace the salvation offered to us in Romans 8. Romans 8 isn't asking you to accept theology. It's not asking you to be orthodox in your doctrine, though it's orthodox. It's not what it's after. It's not after being a Baptist or a Methodist, trying to line you up in some kind of uh, tribe. That's not what is after. Everything in Romans 8 just 
dripping with the grace of an offer that you and I ought to run to and embrace. The offer of salvation. That God in His love for us would not spare His Son, but would deliver Him up for us all. That that is a salvation offer that is made to human beings by grace, not by works. In any state, in any sin, in any situation, it is the glorious offer of a loving God to save sinful people. That's what He's doing in Romans 8. He's offering something for you to embrace. Number four kind of brings us to what I wanted to share, and I think I've got time to cover it, so let's jump into number four. We would benefit from staying conscious of the satisfaction promised to us in Romans 8. At the end of verse 32 is a very strange statement. The statement is very important, and it's easy to kind of blow over it and jump on into what's coming, which is even more glorious than some of the things we talked about today with this certainty of our salvation and this wonderful promise of no condemnation and no separation and no alienation from God. But the last phrase in verse 32, put your finger on that real quick. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Why would he drop that in? Okay, he would drop it in because of something that Paul says in another place. Come with me to Philippians. Come to Philippians and uh, we're going to park there for a minute. In Philippians, chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of what? Are you following Paul? Paul is saying that if you follow Jesus, you could lose everything. Follow him. Make sure you're tracking with him. Jesus said, no one can be my disciple who does not give up his possessions. He didn't say give away. He says give up. If you follow Jesus, you may suffer like Paul suffered the loss of all things. That may be your reality. You may lose your family. People all over the world today lose their family when they follow Jesus. You may lose your inheritance. You may lose your relationships with 
people that you count very dear. You may lose your life. You may lose your health. You may be stripped of all that you have. I was reading an article this week of an honor killing where a father had his own daughter and her boyfriend killed because the boyfriend led his daughter to Christ. And so the father put a hit on the boyfriend and his own daughter and had them murdered. They lost everything to follow Jesus. So Paul, when he talks about how will he not freely give us all things, is saying that part of following Christ is understanding our rewards are not now. They are later. And that there may be in your following Jesus a stripping away of everything. And that in that stripping away of everything, you need some assurance of a satisfaction that will be with you today, but also you will look forward to in the future, in the inheritance that you will get, in which all things will be yours. All things. You'll lack nothing. Jesus said no one has lost father or mother or family or houses or land in this life that he will not be rewarded perhaps in this life, but certainly in the life to come. This is a promise. So if you follow Jesus, there may be the stripping away of things that are precious to you. They hurt. And that leads me to one final thing that comes with this. And... um. Uh, I lied to y'all about having time. My clock I'm watching is not the same you're looking at. So it says I have nine minutes, but I don't think I do. But here we go. Um, Listen very carefully to this. This week I was studying. uh, We're in Jeremiah on Wednesday nights and I was studying. I was talking with some of my small group and working through some things I read in Jeremiah, some things these guys were saying to me and I was learning from them and And God put together some pieces of a puzzle that helped me. And I want to give those pieces to you. And they're really important. Because when I saw what it was, I said, this is a chunk I've been missing from some clear teaching in Jeremiah that I missed. Some clear teaching in Ezekiel that I missed. And some clear teaching in the New Testament that I missed and came to understand something. And here's the thing. In the book of Jeremiah, God is telling the people that the judgment that's coming upon them is for idolatry. And that their idolatry is rooted in pride. So he's telling them, you guys are going to get judged because of your idolatry. But the reason for your idolatry is your pride. And so I had to start chewing on how are pride and idolatry how, how are they linked? Because I can't always see links between things. I'm not that bright. And so I have to kind of work through and chew on. And as we were sitting there uh, in our small group Friday, and I was pondering some things that are already in my mind from Wednesday night, and some other stuff that was going on in my head, and I've told you before, my brain's like a sack of cats, and so it's kind of moving all the time. And so we're sitting there, and, and, and things became very clear. Listen carefully. This is what I understood. Why pride and idolatry are linked. And why idolatry is always tied to created things. Okay? 
things formed with hands, things thought of in the mind. They're all parts of the created order. Everything we idolize comes from the created realm. It's a part of the fallen creation. Okay, so here's, here's the deal. Pride and idolatry are linked in this way. When you idolize something, when I idolize something, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, let's, I'm going to just pick something. Okay, let's say I idolize this iPad, all right? I, and by the way, we do idolize our electronics, amen? Everybody, spend a day without your phone. And then talk to me about that. Uh, or without your computer or car or whatever it is that it's easy. Um, and let's say I idolize this and, and, and my heart says to me, Bart, if you can get a new iPad, you'll be happy. It'll make you happy. You'll be satisfied. Have you ever had that go on in your mind about any created thing? Even a person? Even somebody you were dating? It, it, come on. Has that ever happened to you? Am I just talking to myself here? Yeah, is it happened to you? Yeah, I get that car, I get that boat, I get that house, I get that person, I get that thing, and I idolize them, and I really focus on them, and I got them, and they're right here. Now here's what I'm saying, and here's why idolatry is tied to pride. Pride says my need is not very big. My need is not as big as God says it is. God says my need is so big that only someone the size of God can meet my need. Listen carefully. God says that my problem, my sin, my need is so big that it can only be filled by an infinite, eternal being dying on the cross for my sins, being raised and revealing to me His glory as my ultimate satisfaction. That's what God says all through the Bible is my need. My need is that big that only through the slaughter of God's own Son can my needs ever be met. What pride does is this. It brings my need down to something smaller and says, this will fill my needs. He will fill my needs. She will fill my needs. That will fill my needs. If I get that thing and all of a sudden I idolize that thing as the thing that will bring me satisfaction. Now listen in Ezekiel 16 as God unfolds this and watch what happens. Come with me to Ezekiel 16. We're going to close with this. I hope it will give you something to chew on. What happened is God called Israel and He saved Israel, called them as a nation, started with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And so Ezekiel gives this little brief history in sort of a parable. Chapter 16 of the book of Ezekiel, verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries by, on every passerby who might be willing you took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot with them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels you made of my gold and my silver I had given you, and you made for yourselves images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and you covered them and offered them my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, honey, which I fed you. You would offer them before them as a soothing aroma, so it happened, declares the Lord your God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, and you'd sacrificed them to the idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols, causing them to pass through the fire. And besides all your uh, abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth 
when you were naked and barren, squirming in your blood, talking about Israel being born like a like an infant being born and being outcast. Well, if you run all the way down to verse 26, it says you also played the harlot with the Egyptians. Your lustful neighbors multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I've stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You even played the harlot with them and still not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, and yet then you were still not satisfied. Now, what does all that mean? Here's the deal. Once Israel stopped... Seeing that their need was so big that only God could fill it. They started shrinking down their understanding of the size of their need to the size of an idol. To the size of sexuality. To the size of houses. To the size of land. To the size of gold and silver, they shrunk down the infinite need and said, no, my need is finite. And if I get this, if I get this, if I get this, if I get this, these things will satisfy me. But God says, no matter what you did, you kept not being satisfied. No matter what you went after, no matter what you participated in, even to the point of sacrificing your own children to these false gods, you were still not satisfied. Why? Idolatry is the diminishing of the size of what your needs really are. And the belief that anything but God could make you happy. That's why Paul throws this in. Because of the tendency of humans to measure whether or not they'll follow Jesus by how much of what they idolize that they might lose. They might lose their comfort. They might lose their home. They might lose their friends. They might lose their family. They might lose their possession. They might lose whatever those things are. And so when we idolize those things, we make our need down to something small and tangible. And here's what happens. We fulfill what happens in Romans chapter 1 when it says they worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator. What's going on here? Paul is speaking to the fundamental needs of humanity. You and I, down at our very core, feel very insecure. And we tend to shore up our security with things, possessions, material stuff, earthly things, in order to feel safe, and secure, and loved. Paul says, listen, if you get Jesus, you will eventually get everything. C.S. Lewis Lewis said it this way. Go One more slide. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Now think that through. That's idolatry at work. If your aim is stuff on this earth, and that's how big your need is, your heart has lied to you. 
Your need is so big that it would swallow the earth in a second, wipe its mouth and say, give me Mars, give me Venus, give me Jupiter, give me another world. You could eat the universe into your soul right now and you would feel hungry at the end of the day. Your need is so big that only an infinite God with infinite love, with an infinite Son who gave an infinite sacrifice to pay an infinite price for an infinite sin could ever settle your situation. That's why Paul is preaching one thing to you. Jesus Christ. That's it. And he goes through all this to say to you, You just need one thing. You need Jesus. Would you bow with me? I don't know where you are in your struggle. But God does. And in that struggle, here's what He knows. He knows the power of idolatry. And He knows that if you have idolized any created thing, and you are looking for it to satisfy, that it never will satisfy. But on top of that, He's offering you an infinite Son and throwing in with Him everything. Everything. A new heaven, a new earth. A place where they pave their streets with gold. What does that mean? That you go around thinking the streets were cool? No. You came home over here today and you weren't collecting asphalt on the way. It was just serving a basic purpose for you to get here. That's the way gold is in heaven. The highest things of earth are the basest things in heaven, which means that the rest of heaven is beyond description. And the good that God has for you in heaven is bought for you in Jesus. And so I don't know what you're eating today, but you're trying to swallow the whole universe and you'll never be satisfied. And so I'm asking you, take Jesus. Take Him into yourself. Take Him into your heart. Take Him into your life. He is infinite and infinitely satisfying. The Bible says in Psalm 1611, That in your presence, O God, there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. It's a promise for infinite fulfillment. Only in God. Only through Jesus. So I'm inviting you to Jesus Christ. That you this very day would follow Jesus. Giving your life, your heart, your mind, and everything you have to Jesus. Would you do that? Call upon Him with me now. Pray with me. God in heaven, I've heard the good news that you love me. You love me. I know down inside me all the unlovable things. But you know them. And yet you love me. Thank you. And I believe you expressed that love through Jesus Christ. I believe he died for my sins and was raised from the dead. I believe he is you, God, in human skin. I trust 
Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Keep me. I pray in Jesus' name. Some of you are here today, you're believers, and you've been letting some idols slip in because you're not really focusing on and meditating on all that God is for you in Jesus. Would you join me in casting those things off and focusing on He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also freely with Him give us all things? Even if you lose everything now, all things are in store for you. Believer, would you repent of your idolatry with me? And embrace Jesus as He ought to be embraced. Worship Him as He ought to be worshipped. Love Him as He ought to be loved. Would you stand as God leads you? Would you come?